Hello and welcome to this, the 51st episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I'm a 16-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene because we're now in October and that's the anniversary date, I guess, from uh, all that stuff you would have heard on last week's podcast. And I am, of course, a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. Well, we are back to normal, folks. Um, The madness of last week is no more. Uh, Look, we don't need to talk too much about it. You know what the story is. I caved to the pressure. You guys wanted it, so we gave it to you, and I got to... uh, have my moment in the sunshine for a little while, so that was nice. Um, yeah, look, the gloves came off a little bit, and that's fine too. I've had to spend the last year being, you know, independent, impartial interviewer man, and, uh, you know, last week was about me giving my opinions on stuff in the way that I've kind of afforded that opportunity to people over the last year, and I thought, fuck it, if you're going to do it, you know, speak your mind, speak the truth. Uh, I hope I didn't step on too many toes. I hope nobody's offended by anything I said. I didn't single anybody out. I didn't name any names. Uh, I don't think anybody's getting any great surprises from anything that I would have said last week. I think uh, most people know how I feel about most things, and uh, yeah, I hope you're all okay with that, because I still love you all deeply. Um, So yeah, it was nice, it was nice to do it, Uh, but that's that chapter closed. Let's move on, eh? Um, So yeah, this is a fun week for me. Uh, This was supposed to be a week off in the Fight Night Tour, but uh, I'm actually filling it up uh, by doing a whole other show, um, which is the Judge's House with the Great Performance Corporation, um, Joe Mangan and Tom Swift, who I've had the great privilege and pleasure of working with quite a few times now, Uh, so it's nice to be putting in a a nice little site-specific piece up in Marsh's Library for the uh, for the Stoker Festival, so that is nice to do before we get back into Lanigans for Fight Night, which I'm obviously very very excited about. Finally wrapping up this tour over uh, after what'll be I guess three months on the road, um, so it's been it's been pretty intense. But uh, hey, look, all good things must come to an end. So look, as ever, we bring you this podcast absolutely free of charge each week. We promise that we won't ever charge for these interviews, but we are looking for you to put your money back into Irish theatre. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote, and sell celebrate all that's great about Irish theatre. And of course, as ever, the easiest way to support is to go and buy yourself some tickets for whatever show that may be. If it happens to be Fight Night at Lanigan's, that's fine by me. But for whatever show is on around town that you haven't gone to see yet or something that's taken your fancy, go and put your money where your mouth is buy yourself some theatre tickets, support Irish theatre, keep this whole wonderful machine ticking over. If maybe ticket prices are beyond your reach at the moment, I would say to you, we throw in lunch for free at Lanigan's and for a £10 ticket, maybe you want to come down there and buy it. But uh, you can of course always go over to fundit.ie or one of the other crowdsourcing websites. Uh, Donations there start from as low as a fiver and there are always great rewards in return for those donations. And of course there's a million ways you can support without putting your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast. This is 51, this is the penultimate one. So maybe this is kind of almost your last opportunity to go and do it. Um, You know, go and tell them that in person over a cup of coffee or share the link on Facebook or retweet the link on Twitter. Go and subscribe to the podcast so that next week, for the last time ever, you get it magically into your inbox. Um, Do go back and listen to all the other episodes. Maybe pick the Peter Daly one. That makes him happy. It makes him feel like he has a purpose in life because really, God love him. He really doesn't have much else going for him. But, you know, every morning he goes down, he checks the iTunes charts and if he's anywhere in kind of within sniffing distance 
the top 200, that kind of gives him a purpose for the day. And uh, if you can't support Peter Daly, where are you going with your life? Uh, do leave us a review over on iTunes while you're there, or you can simply click to rate us on their five-star rating system. You can, of course, follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland, or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. So that brings us to our guest this week. And this is a funny one, ladies and gentlemen, because uh, as you would have heard me talking about on last week's episode, um, you know, we will be finishing up this series without getting to an awful lot of the people that uh, the kind of the bigger names and stuff that you would have expected us to get to or people that I just would have personally really liked to get to like people that I'm a huge fan of um, and uh, you know there's a couple of people that we won't have covered by the time we finish some of those are people who I didn't think maybe are at a stage in their career where there'd be enough to fill like, to fill up a full uh, you know hour long conversation there's some people who uh, I'm not asking on because I just don't want to ask them on. You know, I'm not friends with everybody. Uh, and there are some people who we won't be getting to because we presumed they were out of our league. Uh, and I have to say, number one on the list for people we were presuming were out of our league was, uh, you know, one of my all-time favourite writers, Marco Rowe. And a couple of weeks back, uh, while working with the great Jimmy Fay, he kind of dropped into conversation, you know, have you asked Mark to do one? I said, no, but I'd shit the bed if I thought I could get him. That'd be amazing. And he said, well, I'll sort that out for you. Um, and true to his word, he did. Went and brokered the deal, hooked myself and Mark up, uh, took a little bit of negotiating, but we got him. Uh, and so here it is. We we now have Mark O'Rowe, one of the most phenomenal writers out there, a guy who I remember... You know, I remember my first encounter with Mark's stuff was going to uh, see Made in China at the Peacock, I guess, man, more than 10 years ago now. Um, and just being blown away by this writing and this style and this real passion to the writing. The guy's just phenomenal. And then, uh, look, he, he's just amazing. Everything the guy does, I love to bits. He's amazing. And so so we got him. We got him on the podcast. Here we are for the penultimate one. And I'm blown away. So look, as usual, hey, let's not listen to me. Let's listen to Marco Rowe. Let's get straight into it. The brilliant Marco Rowe. The wonderful Marco Rowe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm in proper fanboy mode here. I'm going to actually have to keep it under wraps, but I'll do my very best for you. <laughs> um, okay. Right, let us do then, as we do every week, let's get back to the very beginning. Talk to me about why the theatre for you. When did that spark happen? Um, well, I suppose growing up, probably in secondary school, I was a big movie fan, big literature fan. Uh, when I say literature, probably you know starting off with Stephen King and right. horror stories and uh, uh, and then, and then, as a movie fan, horror movies, kung fu movies, anything that didn't have, you know, didn't require any thought uh, <laughs> to watch. And then, I suppose, as I got older, I got interested in the, in the more, the more complex stuff. But uh, I suppose, in, you know, just after I left school, I suppose for the few years after, I didn't go to college, so I worked in a series of kind of jobs, working done stores and video right. shop and factory, that kind of thing. And and but I had a real, like a real passion to. To do something creative, I think I might have would have liked to have been an actor, maybe or right. Uh, uh, and you know, discovering people like Copeland and Scorsese and all those great directors from that period. Well, this period as well, I suppose. Uh, but you know, there was nothing. I mean, there would, to to actually get in to be an actor acting in a film or to be a, a director making a film just seemed like a, it was impossible. You know, yeah. the odds were so so against it. But I like. I, I didn't actually write. I read an awful lot. And I thought when I first started writing for theatre, I remember telling, telling people before I'd never really seen, I think I'd seen three plays before I wrote my first play, but I'd read a lot of plays and that would have fallen just into the literature category. Right. So when I was reading, you know, all those usual heads like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and <laughs> Dickens and you're also reading Shakespeare and some Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams. And, right. 
Um, and 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 it was, I suppose it was like like a, a good few people of my generation, uh, mammoth that yeah. that like discovering the movies, tracing the plays through them. Uh, maybe want to kind of experiment a little bit in dialogue and kind of try and replicate that cool kind of rhythmic yeah. sound and and that very contemporary hard edged sort of sound. So um uh so I did a bit of that. I think I wrote a few sketches. Uh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. The reason I kind of chose theatre was, as I said, that the odds against having a film made or having a script made sure. was, were astronomical. Whereas, at the very at the very least, if you if you wrote a play, or in my mind anyway, you could put it on in your shed, or you could actually do it was doable. You know, yeah. you get a few people, even if they weren't actors, they could still yeah. learn lines. And and now I I wouldn't have that kind of personality. I could never get a bunch of people together and make right. them make them. But at the time, I thought, well, at, at the very least, that's what you can do. So it was something that was at least attainable then or achievable that you go this is something that well, possibly yeah, we could yeah. make happen well it felt that way for somebody who knew nothing right. I mean literally nothing I I my first play so so yeah I wrote a few sketches and they seemed like they, the dialogue seemed to be quite good and all you've got to go on is the dialogue and that, yeah. was, that was the kind of I suppose the dialogue equals the writing and that was the rush that was just creating stuff that you, you know four or five lines that you could read back over rewrite slightly and yeah. look at it and kind of go that's really good you know yeah. that's but you've got to go from there then to telling a story. So I wrote a play called The Aspidistra Code. Right. Uh, and that was one of the winners in an initiative. I remember calling it co- a competition being told, no, it's not a competition, it's an initiative <laughs> for young playwrights between the age of, I think, 18 and 30. Uh, and there were five... Winners isn't the word, but yeah, five people sure. had, their, had, their, had their plays presented and in, at the Peacock. And you got a week's rehearsal and you, you had you, you had a rehearsed reading basically right. at the end of the week but that was enormous I mean that was that was just you know that was unbelievable yeah. every relative I had was invited to it <laughs> every relative I had came to it it was just it was the best ever and around the same just, just after I wrote a play from both hips yes and just going back to not knowing anything I I went into I found the phone no the addresses of theatre companies in the phone book and I went into town and I dropped them. I couldn't afford stamps. So I dropped them into right. each office and Fishamble produced that. But they were the only ones who ever even got back to me. Really? Yeah. Nobody, I didn't even get rejection letters. I just got, you know, just got one. You must accept- have felt so special. <laughs> one, yeah, one accepting phone call, you know what right. I mean? So, uh, but, but, but then we did it and we had a fantastic time on that, you know, and, and, and that was a real... Uh, that felt like a real achievement as well. And then, what kind of a baptism of fire was that for you? Because like you said, if you'd only seen a handful of plays at this stage, it's not like you're going and going, oh, I'd, I'd really love to have Aidan Kelly and Carl Shields play this or whatever. Well, or, or did you know much no, about you the know, theatre you know, it's, it's a tough balance, I suppose, in, in, in theatre, particularly in this end of it. Because I, I think the greatest skill of any artist and, and any collaborative artist, I think, is 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 knowing who to listen to and who not to listen to and knowing when you're right and someone else is right knowing when what they're saying has value or when they're full of shit and it's a constant balance and <laughs> throughout your whole but I think th- those skills get better and better yeah. as you go along in the beginning you're happy I was well I was happy enough to be um, to be told what to do do you know what I mean I kind of I was a novice and I kind of, but then yeah. you, you you feel that you have very deep seated beliefs that you you haven't quite been able to articulate yet even to yourself yeah. but people are telling you stuff and you're kind of going no it's more than that you know it's more than and it's deeper than that yeah. and, uh, I remember someone telling me um, quite early I was I was 
you know, you, you get into Mammoth and you, you, then you discover Pinter and then you discover Beckett. You know, you, you see that lineage going right back. And then you discover like elements of like King Lear and Shakespeare <laughs> that, that have influenced like, you know, all of them. But, but, but working back to, to Pinter, he was a real discovery as well. Holy, holy shit. Well, also it was the idea that you didn't have to be literary and have a huge vocabulary and have a huge command of, you know, the, the poetic potential yeah. of the English language. He wrote so sparsely and it was about rhythm and it was about music and it felt like something attainable. And he's so singular, you know what I mean? That, that kind of feel of his plays is so kind of itself. And I remember someone older than me telling me, ah, Pinter, you know, he's, he's one of those guys you get into at a certain age and then you kind of leave him behind. <laughs> and I remember at the time thinking, oh my God, you know, not, he can't be, you know what yeah. I mean? So I'm just, this is just some childish phase I'm yeah. going through, you know? But in fact, you know, I still love Pinter. I mean, you know, he's, God, God. So, um, so that was... Uh, so yeah, in terms of a baptism of fire, I don't think there's ever a real baptism of fire. A big baptism of fire is when something you work hard and is rejected outright right. and it makes you question your own talents, yeah. you know what I mean? Uh, like with, with From Both Hips, I remember, we didn't get big audiences here. Right. And that was very tough. And we did it at the project at the Mint. Yes. And I would go into town and go into the Kylemore. Is it still the Kylemore? Yeah. And sit in the window. And you could see across the Henry Street the, and the corner... And you would see, like, you would count six, seven, oh, eight people going in. And if a bunch of people went in, you might follow them over and watch the show that night. Do right, you know what okay. I mean? Which you'd see, like, 14 people in total. And you just go, you know, I'll give it a miss for tonight. Poor actors have, don't have a choice. <laughs> you know, they have to go on stage. But, um, so, so, yeah, so, um, the, the, you know, it was kind of step by step. And uh, so there was those two. We did a short play called Run Down that George Heslin directed a year that was before From Both Hips happened right and uh, that was in the international bar it was a, like a half hour show yeah. it was a lovely little piece and it was a lovely little job he did and it was quite successful I don't know if it was the marketing or how he marketed it or whatever yeah. but we packed the place out for, for two weeks and that was 14 shows and I think I saw 13 of them I think you know I wow. loved kind of hanging out watching that uh, and then I wrote two plays I was commissioned to write two plays for a youth theatre one for Tally Youth Theatre one for Dublin Youth Theatre and they were good experiences as well there's something about the the untrained or the semi-untrained yeah. young actor it was great uh, a, a great exercise in writing for young people and for beer casts as well and, and and my memory of them is that there weren't really any weak performances in those shows I think they were yeah. all and that's you know it's a big ratio of you know what I mean in terms of you 14 people in one show and I think it was only 9 in the other but they were good experiences as well you know and, and was that like the Gaelic school does now was that bespoke writing for a particular group of people that you went and yeah. meet this you know whatever kind of no it was sort of um, you know it was Dublin Youth Theatre and Tally Youth Theatre so it was kind of we have this many yeah this many actors can you write a play for as many actors as you can, as you can yeah so you kind of, you know you're getting a little bit too much. And as I said, I think the, the Talu Theatre when I, I only had nine yeah. nine characters and, and the W Theatre at fourteen. Uh, but they were quite self contained, very um uh, urban comic dramas with not a message, but something to something yeah. to say or something to explore. And they seemed to enjoy doing them and I, I had a great time watching them as well. They were good little good little shows, you know. Wow. So okay, then talk to me, when does 
how did the rookie happen and and what was that experience like okay how, how see it's never as good as it seems from the outside you know don't tell them that all you think is just go, I sat down one day I wrote it an hour and a half instantly Steven Spielberg rang and I made four million pounds off is that the way Dave were there looking at it going is this shit is this, is this shit I think it's good I think it is but I'm not really sure I think my first few plays I was sort of I, you know, they call it finding your voice. I don't, I, 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 don't, I don't really know about that, but it's definitely finding that very, very specific thing that you're interested in. And it's not that it, you don't find it intellectually and say, now I'm going to write about this particular subject. You find it, it's, it's a good thing. You yeah. know? But I think I was slightly too exposed to what was going on in theatre in Ireland, in my, you know, immediate vicinity at, at, at the time in that... I, I guess I, I, my influences were quite cinematic and literary and were very dark and very violent and, and poetic, I suppose. Uh, but what was going down was, was kind of kitchen sink dramas or comedies yeah. or very... I felt quite, quite left out of the whole Irish thing. I didn't have... There was no kind of Irish quality to what I was doing. Okay. That probably came out of growing up in Tala where we had English channels. That's right. what I discovered subsequently. That You know, people okay. who had the English channels have no cultural background you right, know okay. no Irish cultural background that's the great uh, evil for a generation that's the great <laughs> evil so it all bypassed me and then you, you know you get older and you meet people and they're singing you know traditional Irish songs you're kind of going I don't know any of these I don't know a single traditional Irish I still don't you yeah. know what I mean but I can name and every Blue Peter presenter every from... blue, yeah, yeah. And, and, and discovering people like Freel and Murphy and, and, and all those guys came after I started writing for theatre I didn't right. know these guys at all before I started writing I'd heard of Philadelphia Here I Come yeah. you know, that, 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 that was it so, so that was all kind of a late education, but um, on Howie, I yeah, um, I had a play torn down by the Abbey, which kind of sort of devastated me. Um, that I'd kind of been commissioned to write, but then they kind of said, you know what? Wow. Fuck off. <laughs> you know. That, <laughs> uh, and and that that was tough, and it it it's weird because I suppose people who. It's a bit of a bugbear of mine, uh, people in positions of power over budding artists who are not necessarily the most um, helpful or kind or, you yeah. know what I mean, who don't have the... I, I mean, for me, I, I, I'd already, I'd like, I had two youth theatre plays, one short, two full-length plays, one of which got produced, one of which didn't, under my belt. And yeah. even even still... I had this torn down that really kind of devastated my self-confidence and you kind of think of all those budding Joyce's yeah. out there, you know what I mean, who at the very initial stages are just cut off from from what they want to do. So uh, I kind of went away for a while and you, if you're a writer, you know, you have, you know, I didn't write for a while, but you can't, you can't stop yourself. And I remember two things kind of coincided. One was watching The Wild Bunch, the Sam Peckinpah movie, and he was so contrary and so you know he just he, he did his own thing and he had trouble with the studios all the time because the stuff he was doing was so kind of out there and violent and, yeah. and just stuff that they didn't understand and I kind of felt to fail on that level trying to do something like that felt like a more honourable failure than trying and the play I kind of wrote for the Abbey was kind of trying to do the type of play that was being done trying to fit the mould trying to fit the mould yeah, 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 yeah. So absolutely, absolutely and closer to that than anything I'd written previously yeah. so I kind of thought well my instincts are telling me to go to go in the other direction and around, the, around that time I read a book the Nick Heron book of Conor McPherson's three, mo- three monologue plays yeah. first three monologue plays and that was a real eye-opener in terms of 
I mean, they were real page turners. You kind of, when you, a guy gets on stage and he just starts talking, he tells a story, and if you can, I mean, if you can make it interesting and complex and and dynamic enough, it, it uh, it'll people will listen to it, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I, I kind of said I'll give something like that a go. And I re- I read Faith Healer around that time as well, right, which is okay. which is another huge influence. But then, anyway, I started off this monologue thing, and it was. I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I made my way through it, and then I, I knew that there was going to be some big kind of a violent fight at the end or something cathartic and yeah. hugely, you know, whatever. And I was kind of working my way through it, and I kind of thought, oh, where the hell is this guy going to go now? And at, at the exact same time, I was reading Beckett's uh, uh, Malloy, his right. novel Malloy, which is told from two characters. It's told in two first-person narratives. So we have one person... Do you know what I mean? That's half yeah. the book, and then we have another. And I kind of, I got just past the halfway point, and then there was a new character introduced, and I read a few pages and said, "The rest of this was him." Oh, and I kind of, what a brilliant way to kind of structure something. So I said, "I'll do that with a, with my play." And then I looked around and went, "This guy that he's after here, he could be the guy in the second half." And that's kind of how how it sort of worked out. So it was a combination of Beckett and Peckinpah, you know, they were, <laughs> but they were literally the two things that that converged yeah. and 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 sort of the play for me. It was a play that I kind of made up as I went along. So there's always the, the, the fear that you're going to write yourself into a, into a corner, yeah. into, you know, into a brick wall and not be able to go anywhere. But it, it was just one of those things that sort of magically, the, the plot just kind of you know, happened by itself. And then the language was, once again, being a little bit um, self-indulgent. Just, just you, quite, you, you think back and you go, what has he loved when you started writing out? And it was the language. Is what yeah. I just said a few minutes ago, just putting several words together in a way that they create a, a certain rhythm and a certain feel and you make it your own in terms of writing in a certain type of language you want to write it in and that's that's where that came out of you know so then you finish the thing and you 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 kind of go is this any good you 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 think it's good you know what i mean but you just can't you can't really tell and uh, i kind of got an agent out of it and he sent it out and the book we did at the bush theater should I keep going? No, I feel so, like no, I'm no, going. That's fine. Going, no, where, uh, so where did it happen first? He, the, it was here first. No, Bush Theatre in London Bush first. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was. I didn't want to send anyone here because the Abbey had. I'd sure. Been, I'd been kind of burnt by that, and I kind of thought. And also, I saw the other guys, End and Connor, and, yeah. and all those guys were kind of getting done over there. So I said, send it, send it there. So. Um, so also, Ireland has a proud history of sending its writers away to make it. Sends right, I know, yeah, I know, I know. No, no shame with that. You want to be part of that tradition. You've know? got to suffer a bit at first. But then exactly. But, um, so, so it was, it was incredibly small scale. Mike Bradwell, director, who ran the bush at the time, and um, he came over. I'd, I saw Carl and Aidan in a couple of plays and just knew it's him and it's him. They're right. the guys. Um, but I had to meet Mike. Mike said, Mike didn't know them, obviously, so he said, we need to audition. We'll audition those guys as well. If at the end you still want them, you can sure. have them. It's your say. Oh, really? But I want to see them and other guys as well. Yeah. Right, okay. So, but he didn't need to be persuaded. I yeah. said, okay, fair enough. You know, <laughs> cast yeah. them. So, um, and, then, and then, you know, I remember meeting them at the airport. My girlfriend bringing me to the airport, seeing me off, and their girlfriend seeing them at the airport, and us meeting and not really knowing each other, except yeah. for through maybe meeting once before to kind of tell them about the play and then just auditioning them and then all of us going over to London and they stayed together and I stayed separate to them for the rehearsal period and it was it, I mean it was good fun they were great to hang out with I mean we yeah. were, were still very close and it was a real it was a special time but as often with those kind of special times they're only you only realise it after the yeah. fact you know 
and we did a great rehearsal process but the thing is that, that you start to realise that what you've written is, is, is really very good and, yeah. and it starts to mean more and more to you which means that during the rehearsal process you get more and more scared as, as time goes on you know right. also we didn't know how to do it how do you do it it's a monologue but unlike Connor's it was told in the present tense his were yeah. told in the past yeah. as a story that had already happened. This was sort of storytelling, but it sort of felt like it was occurring in the, in the present as well. It felt right when I was putting it on paper, but I, I just didn't know how to do it. And, uh, and Mike took a very... I wasn't really paying attention. I was there, but I wasn't. Only, you know, when I hated something, I said, oh, that's shit, I don't like that. You know, whatever. <laughs> but mostly, I think they caught me asleep several times because those long seats, those long seats <laughs> in the bush, and I just kind of dozed off. But... But Mike had a, seemed to have a real organic way of doing it in a way, it's sort of an invisible way of directing in, in, in that the, the, let the actors go, let the actors yeah. go. I've, I mean, I've discovered subsequently that, that, it's a, that it's a great way to kind of do things because the actors have way more to offer than anything you can kind of come up with because they feel it yeah. first and then they take it out. You, know, you can kind of guide them technically and give them notes and stuff like that, but they're the ones that it's... And it seemed to come very, much, very organically out of the two guys. Yeah. But even up until, as, as with every rehearsal, you're there on the day of the, the first preview and you're going, we're not ready, we're not yeah. ready. Even lines-wise, we're not, I don't, yeah. it's, not, it's not kind of in there. And then it went on and then it, you know, here's what happens, right? It sounds great. It's this big success. It's not this big success. We did quite well. We didn't pack out the place, right? Okay. And you're looking, the weir is on down the road on, on the <laughs> West End and it's, it's packing the bin for a year and a half or two years. So no matter what you've got, you're kind of going, nah, this is what, that's what I want. That's yeah, the kind okay. of success. So it's, so at the t- and then you look back, it's only when you look back and you say, oh, it was amazing. It was incredible. Yeah. And why are we even thinking that way? And as I said, you're doing like 70% houses, you know what I mean? You're kind of wishing, weren't that you're kind of wondering why they're not uh, queuing around the block, you know? And we had much bigger success then as we went to Edinburgh. We did have them queuing around the block yeah. in New York and stuff like that. And it was a real adventure in that way. Uh, and me and the guys really got on. We, re- we genuinely yeah. uh, clicked. We really did. In a way that I haven't, I never had before or, or, or never so... Completely, might click with one member of the yeah, cast sure, or whatever, of but it was kind of we were we were very self-contained. I felt, you know what I mean. Did did I mean did the stuff of the international tour and then after that did that happen relatively instantaneously? Like because it, it, in my head it's this whirlwind of like you say it goes on and then instantaneously everybody wants to buy it, everyone wants to do it. You need to go around and you travel around the world, it, yeah, superstars. It kind of is a bit. It, no, not it's um I don't know actually. I don't remember. It was I would say several months in between each yeah. kind of thing that happened. So we. We were at the, the bush and then you hope something else will happen with it and then we went to Edinburgh yeah. to the assembly rooms and that was that was just brilliant. And then sorry, we didn't. We went from the bush, we went to Tala. Actually I have a funny funny story. A lot of people have heard the story, but it's good, it's it's quite good. Um the Civic Theatre in Tala, yeah. Breed Dukes. Yeah. She still runs it, and she she's run it since 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 the beginning. And my dad said, you see, you see that, that new theatre has been built down there, the Civic Theatre, why, why don't you do your play down there? And I said, I'm not interested in that kind of, not, not just that kind of making stuff like that happen. The theatre, the producers will do that or they won't. I'm yeah. not interested. I'm working on something new now and I've no interest. And uh, then I heard through the bush that they were going to go to the Civic Theatre before they took it to Edinburgh. I think that's how right. it went. But it turns out that my dad on the sly went down and met with Bree Dukes and sold her the idea of the play and got her to read the play and pretty much set up that whole thing behind my back so uh, did he take so 10% he didn't reverse <laughs> but uh, so that's that, that, that's, that's quite so we went from there to Edinburgh and presumably Edinburgh's then is the shop window for 
for a lot it is, of stuff. But like you know, you don't you people are telling you stuff. You're in the assembly rooms, you're kinda of going, is, is that good? Is that a good place? Right. And they're saying, Well a lot of comedians go on there and then again you ask, is that good? Is yeah. that you know so are we sort of like a stand up comic show in a way, kinda of half and half, which kind of monologues are in a way, you know? And so it was very successful there. I went over for I think the first week or something like that, just just for the crack, you know, and I couldn't stay for any longer. I just I just wasn't able to, but I would have. Uh, and then there was New York. New York was a very small scale, and it was PS one twenty two. Is yeah. that right? Uh, and they loved it there. Oh, I was huge there. I'll tell you what happened. I the Bush Theater took it to New York, and they didn't invite me. Okay. I your pardon. They didn't invite me, and they went. The guys went over, and I got a call from Aiden one day, and he said, yeah. "I'm calling from New York. They're going bananas over this, right? They're they're loving it. You've got to come over. We're having the crack. Come right. over." Yeah. Uh, so I said, "Right, I'm gonna go over. I'm gonna go over." And I think the next day, um, I got a call from someone at the bush asking me to do press. And I told him to fuck off. <laughs> I was on holidays. I was paying for my own ticket. Right. I stayed with Aiden. I slept in his uh, uh, room, and uh, I didn't do any press. <laughs> so, uh, um, and then, but then there was interest in a bigger production, an off-Broadway production, but a big one. Right. And that was being negotiated for many months until Equity stepped in and said, "You've been here already." Why should we right. let you in again? Okay. And that was it. That was kind really? of the end. Of, and yeah. the power of the unions over there can do that? Seemingly, yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah. That's amazing. But presumably, I mean, again, because it's still, like you said, you had a fair bit under your belt, but this is relatively early on in your writing career. To be the toast of New York, I think, must have felt awesome. But it doesn't feel, it's not the toast, it's a small little theatre. I mean, it is. I mean, people where we, you know, we got a, an incredible review from Ben Brantley in the, in the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, um, and that was kind of I was told that that was amazing I remember meeting Jimmy Fay in town he said have you seen the Ben Brantley review and I said no and he had a copy of the newspaper the, like the New nice. York Times that somebody had given him it was like Lynn Parker's in my head but maybe it wasn't yeah. somebody had and we sat in oh anyway a coffee shop in town and had a look at it and it was great but uh, I always find good, good reviews are just like dodging a bullet do you know what I mean? Good reviews don't count. They just keep you on an even keel. Okay. And the bad reviews destroy you. It's right. not fair. You know, there's yeah. not an even balance with okay. that. But, uh, uh, so that, that was the experience. And then it kind of just stopped then. We brought it back then a few years later yeah. at, at the Abbey with the same cast. Uh, hoping they weren't too uh, too old. For but weirdly their age made it slightly more pathetic, which was kind of nice. I mean, as in the characters, sure, yeah. you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it was great. It was great to finally see it. I mean, it's, I, th- those days must have been the best to crack just hanging out with Carl and, and Ado. They were in London, you know. Yeah, we did some mad, mad, mad stuff. It was great oh, fun. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Talk to me then, fast forward a bit to, to Terminus. Again, going back to kind of monologue form and again, going back to both Ado and Carl <coughs> and subsequently yeah. Declan. Um, but you stepped in as director at that point. Yeah. What what motivated that and then what was that like and and, and it, as a general question should writers direct their own stuff well as a rule they shouldn't and as a rule i mean there, there is no rule you know what yeah. i mean um there are good writers and bad writers and good directors and bad directors and sometimes they can cross over and sometimes yeah. you can be a good writer director or sometimes you can only be good at one thing um i find i yeah i mean i found that after, for my for my whole career from Howie the Rookie on, I sat in on all rehearsals. And start I, to finish. I sat in, start to finish. Right, yeah, okay. Yeah. 
so I wasn't being paid for that. So that was one reason, okay, to get paid to be there. <laughs> and you're sort of, I, I, it's it's tough to find an analogy for it. It's kind of give. I know everyone uses the children analogy, but I'm going to use it again. Give me your child, and I will raise it. And you can sit there and watch me raise your child. And okay. whatever I do, you can kind of you can suggest certain things, but you can't. You yeah. you know. And I kind of, if I'm going to fuck up my child, I'll fuck it up myself. You know <laughs> exactly. what I mean? It's my yeah. child. So that was, another, that was another part of it. And it just looked like a lot of fun. It yeah. kind of, you kind of thought, you're sort of, you're sitting in the rehearsal room, people kind of ask you questions sometimes, or you can offer a note if something feels very wrong. But it just kind of felt, it felt like a lot of fun. And it just felt like people weren't understanding the language to the level that I was. Maybe not, maybe not so much understanding the language, but, being as and this is where you can actually be a very bad director as well being as pedantic about it or being as, as specific about it you sure. know the, the language is incredibly important to me um, and, and equally important is how that language is delivered yeah. you know uh, and to be to be a little bit broad and a little bit rough in how you deliver it isn't, isn't really good enough for me sure and once you get it right then you can th- then you can take it wherever you yeah. want but it needs to be the very least for me in the room, the least I wanted was for the language to be exactly right. And are you a stickler for a, you know a, a dash is a dash, not a full stop, or three dots is three dots and not a comma? That I mean, kind it of territory. Cha- I changed. I was doing something with Declan Conlon recently, and kept... it was it was a line like "Sure, I'll go tomorrow," and he was going "Sure, I'll go tomorrow," and I was saying, "No, it's sure I'll go tomorrow." And he said, but there's a comma after the shore, and I'm like, "Yeah, but that's that's grammar. That's <laughs> you know what I mean. You put a comma after the shore." So it's so so often it can work against you because you've yeah. got stuff in there that you're going to play, uh, but you know that that if you put it there, the actor is going to wrongly play. But if you don't put it in there, the sentence won't make grammatical sense. So it's another good reason for the writer to be there in the yeah. room, you know, because it's fine in the music of the of the of the the text is the important thing. Once the actors have that, I find that they make a huge leap. Do you know what I mean? They can sort of makes it easier to remember. They can yeah. you know they can forget about trying to find it now. They know it there because they've. They felt it on a on a very deep musical level. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And then they can do with their characterization and all that kind of stuff. You know. Um, and then, it, like in terms of that experience of just being in the room with actors like that, uh, like you said, you've been doing it throughout your career. It do, does do you see little moments of magic where you get surprised by things that you didn't know you had? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, first of all, I need to say. Um, I was never unhappy with productions that were done by other directors. Sure. I was unhappy with not being part. I wanted yeah. to be more of a part of it. That's all. Like in terms of the jobs they did, I was very happy with those. You know. Yeah. But um. Uh, but yeah, I mean, well, well, the first, the first one, going in to do Terminus. And once again, Terminus was sort of an act of rediscovery, in in the same way that Howie the Rookie was. In that I wrote a little bit of it. I knew I was going to write another monologue play and I knew it was going to be really big and yeah. really kind of spectacular and fantastical. <clears throat> I kind of thought, if you're going to work in that form, if you're not, if you're not stuck in like one location yeah. like set, which is one or two or five locations, I'm really going to take advantage of, of that power. And um, I think I accidentally rhymed a line. Now, I've heard a rumour yeah, about this. Yeah. Is that true? Absolutely. That it was kind yeah, of by yeah. chance? I kind of rhymed and I kind of, and then I did it again and I kind of went what if you were to write it in rhyme? Like a ridiculous <laughs> idea, you know? <laughs> uh, and I kind of thought oh, Almost as ambitious as doing a weekly Jesus, podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, but is it, why you, did I let myself in absolutely, for this? You live to regret it, don't yeah, you? I mean, don't. Jesus. So I, I um, so I, I, I went on writing yeah. that way and kind of doing very dense rhymes and some of the some of the rhymes were like every third 
word you know was a rhyme and then and then you would kind of keep it going and you would shift it and it felt a little bit like jazz because you were yeah. discovering it and you would just say it back to yourself in your head and try and find the direction it was going and you never you never um stuck to any kind of you know uh iambic pentameter yeah. or anything like that there was no kind of verse structure in that way it was all kind of freestyle but it needed to be very densely rhymed yeah. i just found for myself and some days you would just come up with the most brilliant kind of flights of poetry you know and then other days I t- I've told people this before but you know you'd see me in, in cafes going you know trying to find uh, uh, something to rhyme with bag you know I'd be going through the alphabet cag dag fag gag hag trying to find some kind of but also sometimes in your desperation to find a rhyme for a word you would you would you would choose a word that just suited you for yeah. the time being but it would take the story in a slightly different direction yeah. so in fact creatively that 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 was a that was an interesting way to go as well you know even though you sort of knew in general where your story was going so once again you finish that after a long time and after much heartache and and then you um you're in the rehearsal room again you don't know how to, you don't know how this is done again how yeah. do you do it it's something like how we the rookie in that it's in the it's in the present tense and you, and those rules sort of apply which are kind of it is storytelling. It's done in the present tense, but it's told like we tell a we tell a dream and a movie. No, we don't tell a dream. We tell a movies and jokes in the present tense for some reason, right? Right. Okay. Uh, so I kind of it's kind of like that, you know. It's it's, but the so you know you're. I think you know you're on the right path when, or you have the right attitude when an actor reaches point in the story where it's quite emotional or it's quite whatever and instinctively they slow stuff down and all the rhymes in that particular section sort of disappear in a way because they need to focus on the moment and the moment begins to happen and the rhymes are sacrificed and you as the director don't care because right. the moment is so amazing you feel you feel you're on the right path then you yeah. know what i mean if 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 you know if it's a case of making them strictly obey all the the rhythm and rhyming rules well then you're going to lose this incredible moment yeah. that they found so i would always sacrifice that to the moment so right. the rhymes the rhymes would be there but you yeah. just wouldn't hear them yeah. you know so so that was that was kind of a good process but once again it was um terminus is, is far more dense than how we look it's kind of non-stop it's yeah. it's uh and those those bits that i just talked about are actually kind of resting points for us occasionally as well and if you didn't have them if you didn't have a lot of variety in it it would become very boring very quickly and very repetitive it becomes a lot for an audience to take though as well that you just need to kind of craft their journey through absolutely absolutely yeah yeah so you need to make moments happen know when to slow down know when to speed up know what bits to get through as fast as you can because they're they're necessary but they're not dramatic you know what I mean they're not interesting so all that kind of stuff I remember Aidan Kelly we were coming close to our first show and Aidan Kelly showed the they they no I think it was the poster or the the, the flyers that they yeah. had made and they had a little quote from the play it was but it was very much a rhyming bit that was about just kind of movement and yeah. and, and uh, Aidan showed he said it's kind of this kind of thing and whoever it was he showed looked at it and said is it it's all written like that and my heart just sank I thought yeah they're just gonna be bored out of their skulls it's just gonna be like did it did it did it did it did it uh, but it wasn't and it went down very well and, and, you know did it travel further than anything before it had in terms because it seems to me that it went on a tour just non-stop for five and a half and years on and off it did yeah yeah I mean we kept losing cast members 
uh, which isn't I suppose isn't is nineteen euro yeah. because because what you would have six months off and then then another one and, and nothing was ever set they were kind of happening they were you know what I mean they were being yeah. set up as we as we kind of went along so it was Fiek asked could he do it and I said I hope he doesn't mind me saying this I bet you listen to this as well <laughs> he I I said a couple of things one I won't direct it right and two um. I want to know that you've tried to get onto other stages. I said, if you fail miserably, as long as I know you tr- you did yeah. everything you could. So, I mean, he delivered on that in spades, you know. Yeah. Uh, so we went, we did, we, w- we were here, then we went to Edinburgh, then we went to New York, or maybe New York was first, then Edinburgh, then Melbourne. And then we did the other tour, which was all yeah. around America, the UK and Australia. So these were, but these all had about a year in between each yeah. each incarnation, and it was the same incarnation. I mean, I was sick of the play. It was great. The last version we did of it, it was a completely new cast, and it was great to kind of rediscover it with three people yeah. who, who just didn't know it at all, you know, and brought their own sort of interpretation to it. That was kind of that. That was really good. But uh, at, at a certain point, you be, you become sick of the way you've staged it, and you kind of wish someone else would take it. Right. Like, because you remember staging of it was. It was very precise. Mm. It was that darkness and that light just shining into a very small space. Mm. The actors, they could move their upper body as much as they wanted, but they couldn't. So I'd love to see somebody else do a version where they could yeah. prowl around the stage and kind of do what they want, you know? Wow. Yeah. Talk to me then a little bit about the differences in writing for stage and writing for screen. I mean, I know you said an awful lot of your early influences were, were film-based. So what was it like then coming to writing for the screen and then obviously the experience of intermission, which is just has this place of such deep affection for the nation it's kind of yeah. up there with the commitments of the world that people just right. love that movie I don't know um, I want to make some money right? so I wrote, <laughs> I wrote a spec script uh, and I, I think often often not always who knows I don't know I, t- just to do something stupid like write a, a play in, in rhyme or yeah. you know uh, about like demons made of worms and do you know what I mean and, and the underworld and Serial killers, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's you know when you with intermission, the the stupid thing in that was I wrote a it was supposed it was like a shortcuts type of movie. I was going to write a movie packed with characters and yeah. stories going on, and I would start writing and just kind of see where it went. And I read a couple of um, screenwriting books, and they were talking about the three act structure. And it's one hero, and he has a series of obstacles to overcome, and there's a something big happens at the end of the first act, and something big happens at the end of the second act, and it's, too many rules to kind of follow and I kind of think, but what, what about that like the Altman thing where you just get loads of characters and just start juggling them yeah. all so that's kind of what I did uh, and and it was it was a big long script it was it would have been a three hour movie yeah. except for and in fact we had a we had a three hour movie script but in order to get it made it's very tough to get to, to get movies made and particularly movie of that type but I mean you know Colin Farrell was in it but and he was kind of famous at the time he was getting pretty hot even then he was pretty hot even mm. then he'd done Minority Report and Tiger yeah. Land and all but but he did us no good whatsoever. He was it was too small a part, and do you know what I mean? It was still, oh, really? yeah. It's it's kind of if he was the lead in in, yes. a, in a traditional film where he was the hero, yeah. then, then he would have done, did, done us a lot of good. But and it was slightly before Killian Murphy had become the Killian Murphy we know. I mean, he'd still yeah, been doing a fair he, bit of yeah, absolutely at that stage, but not you know quite at the no, Batman not like Batman and all that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, we so yeah, so I wrote this kind of script, and we. It was great. I went to London and I was actually able to interview producers. I told me I don't want to meet anybody. Set, set up some meetings and 
I don't want to be anybody who doesn't want to make it. I don't want to be people who just want to meet me to meet. Sure. Me. Only people who want to make it. So, and I, I, I already had a relationship with John Crowley. Right. So he was in as director in a way. It kind of made it tougher to sell actually with John as director, but I was very happy to keep you know yeah. to keep him there. And we, we did a couple of people. We did, there were a couple of meetings that we went into where people looked at John and said, "Who are you?" You know, I don't know. How, I don't know. I don't know how, got, how they got they got past us or, or people. <laughs> and a couple of people, as I said, I, I asked my agent just to just to you know get me meetings with people who wanted to make it. But you were meeting people who would you'd go into meetings where people were just kind of boasting about the work that they were doing. They don't, and they didn't even want to do your your script. You know, <laughs> I just want to tell you how great we are and how <laughs> shit you are. You know, so uh, so eventually we got. Um, Neil Jordan and Stephen Woolley had a company right. called uh, Company of Wolves. It only lasts for two movies, um, the actors and introduced yes. two Irish movies. And uh, so they, they ended up producing them parallel films on Maloney. And once again, it was one of those films that just almost didn't happen. It kept falling through, really? kept falling through, yeah, right till the last minute and then somehow made it, you know. Uh, and yeah, that was, a, that, that, that was an odd one because it was a much longer script and John was contracted no, in order to, to raise the budget he had to deliver a film under an hour and 45 minutes right. so that you know, a lot of it's gone even then and I remember seeing the first cut and being horrified because yeah. I wasn't warned I was warned there might be a couple of cuts but Jesus Christ <laughs> not what? an hour <laughs> yeah. uh, and, um, uh, that, and, so, and then you don't know what to make of it it's an odd thing you write a screenplay it doesn't happen in theatre I tell you that or if the cuts are made you're there yeah. you know, and you're part of that decision process the decision making process but so you, you go and see a film and you're kind of in shock and uh, it, it, it's tough it's tougher I think it's tougher to give a film director notes than it is for a film director to give a writer direct, a writer notes and here's the reason it must be tough handing in a first cut of a movie because you get a bunch of people coming and saying that doesn't work and this doesn't work and that doesn't work and I guess I was smart enough to know that here, here's the difference Anything that's wrong with a script, you have an infinite supply of shit to fix it with, which is basically anything you can think up. Yeah. With a film, you've only what you've shot. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I was very careful not to ask John certain questions because I didn't know what he got, what he was yeah. allowed to get, what he had. Um, and you can't see the film as a film. All you can see is a, is, uh, of the film is half your script. This film is half my script, or yeah. two-thirds or whatever. Um and it's only by seeing it a few more times and watching it with people and you, you can start to forget about what you wrote and kind of see it as sort of for what it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you see the, the, you see a couple of edits and then you then the music gets put on and you really f feel it start to take shape. And then, we you know, I went to see it in a couple of um, film festivals and, and, you know, it got a great response. But on the premiere in Dublin, my wife is quite a big family. Right? right, and my family will be, will be smaller, and you've a certain amount of tickets, and and <laughs> uh, for the opening night, and we couldn't we couldn't get tickets for all of her family. There were a couple left, so what we said was we'll we'll, we'll go with you. We'll take you on the day that it opens, and the Friday it opens, we'll buy tickets and we'll take you to see sure. it. So we did, and that was the best one right. ever. That was that was the first Friday. It wasn't in the Savoy one. It went to the Savoy one eventually. It was only on the Savoy two. And I sat, sat beside a guy who wept from start to finish. I mean, he wept Brilliant. with laughter. It couldn't have been better. It's the best experience I ever had in the cinema. I, I presume it's much... Is it... Well, I was say, is it different to see... From sitting in, a, in an audience, sitting, like, say, in the Abbey on an opening night of one of your shows versus yeah, here's sitting... Here's the difference, the right? There's one simple difference. And I try to tell... People in film don't quite understand this. And, yeah. and people who aren't in either film or theatre don't understand this. 
the film is the film for better or worse whether they like it or not it is what it is but in theatre someone can forget their lines or fall off yeah. the stage something can go wrong and yeah. that's the big fear you know you know what kind of a show you have just before you know what I mean but yeah. at the end of rehearsal you kind of know what you got you want that little bit of extra percent with the adrenaline on sure. the first on, on the first night but you kind of know what you have and it's just the fear that you've had this very short rehearsal time as you know rehearsal yeah. time is always way shorter than it needs to be <laughs> uh, and, and and you're afraid somebody will freeze or dry up or forget their lines or whatever and that's the fear I, I find open nights absolutely terrifying yet I found when I started directing when I started I directed one show yeah. many times like, <laughs> but uh, I found uh, you've got to be a grown up about it you can't be the writer kind of going oh I don't want to watch my work I'm, right. I feel vulnerable I feel yeah. like they're all judging me you've got to be there for the actors you've got to be watching them so you can give them notes and I found that really liberating I kind of I remember the open night of Terminus and once again it was by the skin of her teeth as, as much as any other show ever was and you, you're 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 there being there for them and yeah. I, I, as I said I found it I found it very liberating you know that wasn't so scary anymore I, uh, I'll never forget reading the, the script of Intermission when I first saw it blew me away it was, it was it is still to this day hands down the greatest screenplay I've ever read right. I was blown <laughs> away by it just excellent, the most excellent thing in the world yeah. so talking about the more recent movie stuff you've been doing have been a lot of adaptations am I right and what is that process <clears> like where you're taking someone else's idea or seed or whatever yeah. and, and putting your stamp on it well for me it's easier is it? Uh, yeah it's the more I write and the more I think about writing and the more I talk about writing the more I realise or the more I think or believe that it's it's about confidence right. every, and I think every art form is about confidence and I just talked about how I was rejected by the Abbey and that it, it went way down and a bit of success makes you yearn for you know you makes you yeah. want more did success did the Abbey idea ever see the light of day or did that never no it never, never did it never okay. did to be honest I'm not sure if it was that great anyway. Okay, okay so so maybe they were, but I wasn't treated that well yeah, anyway, no regardless. Way. But we, what were we talking about? It's about taking the idea, about confidence, oh, yeah. and about taking some confidence and, and adaptation. Yeah. I the first adaptation I did, I I was yeah I was terrified, but I thought um, if I screw this up, it, it's it's very tough, particularly if it was successful. You can see why people kind of get writer's block or get frozen by by you know something they do that's successful you should almost you should almost aim to fail on on after success do you know what i mean because right. otherwise you won't write anything and every single decision you make about the story you're, the next story you're going to tell is like life or death you know what i mean to you it's kind of this is going to say something about me as a writer and if i do something similar they're, they're going to say it's the same old shit. Yeah. If I do something different, they're going to say, why aren't they isn't he doing that or whatever. <laughs> but I remember, now, now I took on my first adaptation job for, for the money. I mean, it's as simple as that. But you kind of go, I'll read this book and I'll read it again. I'll study it and I'll pick it apart and I'll start to try and make a story out of it. And if, it, if I can't adapt it, it was unadaptable. I can, I, I can say, it just wasn't, it wasn't yeah. a book that lent, that lent itself to adaptation. And I found that a great uh, kind of safety net for my, for my self-confidence. Mm. I kind of thought, someone else's book I'll do the best job I can it doesn't represent me or you know the very deeper part of me the ironic thing is when you no matter what you write it becomes part of you and I've, I've, I've gone into several projects where I thought just dash out a draft in a couple yeah. of weeks and I won't give a shit about, about it you know three months later they're, they're still trying <laughs> to get it the yeah. and you, but you've been working your arse you just want to get it right you, yeah. because whatever you hand in is going to represent you you know so you kind of give it everything you can so it's I reckon a playwright 
if, if he's just smart about it will make a good screenwriter you're using the same tools yeah. it's shorter scenes and more story okay and it's as simple as that and, and, and I think the best way of, of for a playwright to learn how to write screenplays is to, to write a couple of screenplays you know what I mean and just try and obey those rules I had one one thing in mind with uh, uh, intermission and that was if I get stuck in a story I can jump to another character if I get stuck there I can jump to another character I think it's very bad for you to try and follow a very prescribed set of rules yeah. that you read in these books by Sid Field and whoever and I think yeah. something else by page 17 you have to have done this absolutely yeah. and the thing is as a storyteller you will you more often you just end up doing that anyway you kind of look at everything you've written you kind of go, they all sort of have that structure it's, yeah. way, it's the way we're designed to tell stories you know yeah. and, but it, you know it doesn't have to fall on page 17 it can fall on page 37 yeah. you know it can fall you know and there, there are plenty of things that, that break those rules you yeah. know um, and if you're following those rules you'll probably end up with something is is slightly more mediocre, middle of the road, maybe. I don't yeah. know. I mean, it works. It works. It works with the, the best films. It works brilliantly. Uh, but yeah, so that was that. That was um, the adaptations, and I've done a few. A couple have been made, but I've done a couple that weren't made as well. And you do it for the money, and uh, um, and as I said, you do the best job you can. But they, they either happen or they don't. I did Star of the Sea. I adapted Joseph O'Connor's Star of the Sea. That was my first adaptation. Yeah. And I felt like such a whore, right? Uh, that I wrote every morning for an hour, an hour and a half, before I started working Star of the Sea, I worked on Terminus. That was the that was that was how I felt good about myself. Right, I had okay. my hour and a half to feel like a real artist yeah. before I uh, be, before I started my horror work. But having said that, none of it's horror work really. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kinda of, it's just it's 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 all writing and it's different it's different types. Uh, but 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 Star of the Sea was one that I wrote years ago for for uh, working title films for John with, with, yeah. with John Crowley and um, they didn't they never wanted to make it and we worked on it for a couple of years and then they then they stuck it in their drawer and Alan Maloney chased the rights for like five years I think four or five years and eventually got them back and I did a I did a draft last year a new nice. draft and they've just started their very first uh, what would you call it movements on, right. on film for producing on the actual movie that Jesus touch wood yeah. you know what movies are like until it's on the fucking screen yeah. it's, it's, it's not being made but, but it's looking good after eight years you know what I mean well that's I mean, in terms of the time frame and stuff are you more of a master of your own destiny when it comes to writing a piece for theatre and that you can sit down write this and there's a stronger chance of it getting put on or is it a more drawn out <laughs> process when it comes to film and then like I know you said a couple of times I was doing this for the money in the way that if I'm doing a show at the Abbey I'm getting paid I'm getting paid if I'm doing a movie that pay scale jumps up yeah. is there a jump up in pay scale for writers as well but is it if it's dragged out over a longer time does that mean it no, all averages film, out see film isn't, isn't like that I mean film if they want if script they want it in six weeks right. you know they don't want it next year or whenever whenever you can manage it <laughs> and in a weird way I'm writing something for the Abbey at the moment actually and I'm, I'm fucking this close to finishing it's my one man Hamlet isn't it it's about a guy from Port Martin who plays a one man Hamlet on the main that's right yeah. the <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. that's grand no, no, it's, I'm it's, what I call, it. it's what I call a proper play right, where people okay. talk to each other and okay. there's, a, there's, there's a fourth wall and I'm kind of stuck at the end what's fucking new for, for any writer you know but uh uh I would meet with Aideen, you know, yeah. Aideen Howard, and, and I would say, put, put some fucking strictures on me, you know, give me some kind of a deadline. And she would say, right, well, you have to have it by this time. And I'd say, right, 
But I go off and go, fuck that. You know, you can't, it's not working, it's not working. Whereas, whereas the film companies, they'll probably sue you. If, yeah, you, if you take okay. a bit too long, they'll, they'll start to sue you, you know. So they want it as quickly. What happens with films, they want it as quickly as possible. They're following, you know, get, get, you finish, you nearly finish, you finish, and then you give them a draft, and then months pass. Do you know what I mean? And then they get back to you. Uh, like, um, Star of the Sea, I did, as I said, I did the latest draft. I finished on my holidays last year, last summer. Right. Um, it, it, I only actually heard anything over the last month or so. So it was over. It was like a year and a quarter or something, you know. But um, uh, that's kind of the way film works. The, the pay scale is is like it's ten times all this. Right, okay. It's huge. Well, I mean, it depends on what project you're. Yeah, I've course. worked on projects for. Often you take the project that you're interested in, right? You know, you there there are some things you get handed and you just go, I just can't do it. It's not it's not my area, yeah. and I'd screw it up, and there's no point, you yeah. know. You kind of you'll often just take something on if you feel that that it's something you can do, or if it's a, if if it's a if it's a subject that really you know I constantly say to my agent you know sometimes he'll he'll send you the odd novel and you you turn down a few in a row and you just kind of go keep sending them one of them is just yeah. gonna and it's never the one you think as well right. you know it's always something that comes left a field uh, and you do it for you know the second last sentence on the second last page you know you kind of that's that's the reason I want to do it now I have to find the proper story <laughs> not the proper story but the story yeah. within the book that, that leads to that moment so it's quite different it's 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 much more of a craft I think in film unless you're writing and directing unless it's your own thing that sure. you're that you're uh, uh, doing from start to finish in, in theatre you can be self-indulgent and I mean that in, in a positive way yeah. in the positive sense of, of self-indulgent you can you can write plays that that rhyme. You know what yeah. I mean. You can write, you you as long as you do it well, and you yeah. have that sort of open mindedness, and 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 you you don't have people relying or or you know investing huge amounts of money and hoping to see huge returns. You've yeah. you know you've it's there it's there for you to create the best kind of piece that you can kind of create and put on, and that's that's it, it's always lovely to have that outlet artistically. I suppose. Um, for me, it, it often feels slightly more. It's kind of tougher, once again, self confidence wise, to write for theatre because you kind of feel that there's a pressure from out there, from people, I don't know who they are, saying you're this or you're that. In film, the, the, the pool is just so big in film, nobody gives a shit. You know, they right. really don't give a shit about you. Whereas in theatre, you can feel them getting ready to jump. Maybe that's just my perception. Okay. Maybe it's a chip I have on my shoulder. I don't know what, but you kind of feel that. There are plenty of people ready to really make very, very, very harsh judgments on you, right. you know, which is, is is kind of scary. And you've just got to get the next one out, and let them do that, and, and move on to the next one again. Then, wow. but I haven't written a play, and I'm I'm happy to be nearly finished this play because I haven't written one since Terminus, which was written six years ago, I think, wow. seven years. Oh, jeez, was it six years ago? Yeah. So it's a long time. Yeah. It's been a long time. I've been paying the mortgage. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there's no shame in that. So when they talk to me, then kind of finally about ambition from here on out uh, given that you've chosen to go and direct theatre wise is there any danger you directing movie wise yeah I I mean I'm about to direct a short 20 minute short that I wrote recently and I have a feature half written right that that if the short goes well and if I can get somebody to finance the feature yeah. etc I'll I'll direct that. You know, I, I knew I would never do it until I'm not someone who's interested in directing other other people's work sure. or being a director just for that particular reason. 
but I knew if I wrote something that was personal enough and deep enough that I couldn't bear and also just something that I understand better than any kind of outsider could I knew I wouldn't be able to give it over I yeah. knew that that would be the one that I'd have to do so that's kind of happened with 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 the short and with the with the, the subsequent uh, feature film right but that's the future I don't know if that will happen but that's what I hope will happen anyway I've got to play I mean I still call myself a playwright and that's, maybe it's just me being pretentious but I, I am a playwright and I want to be a playwright and I'm writing a play and I promise I'll write more plays <laughs> uh, uh, and, and, and there's no greater pleasure than the play you know than, than plays either and also just just the, the, the I mean the genuine pleasure of sitting in a rehearsal room I was in a rehearsal room recently doing a bit of some workshopping on something down at the lab right, right. at least a few months ago and it was lunchtime came and I, I came out and I walked left and I walked right and I walked left and I walked right and I couldn't figure out which direction to go because my head was spinning with pure fucking pleasure I just couldn't I did not know what to do with myself you know so you know that something really yeah. turns you on if that's, if that's the kind of state it leaves you in you know Jesus that's super well this, I have to say Mark I'm so delighted I got a chance to do this this is uh, a real it. pleasure for me uh, and I look forward to working with you on the main stage of the Abbey soon in my one man okay. hammock you're okay, cool. and, uh, and I just look forward to more and more work from you you're a superstar and it's great thank you so much thanks for being so there you have it the phenomenal Marco Rowe how happy am I that I was able to make that one happen that's uh, almost worth the entire year's work to, just to get to sit down in a room with him uh, absolutely amazing such an interesting guy such a such a great great writer uh, and lovely to hear his take on uh, on the business but also just to hear his passion about how much it means to him like you just that is a quintessential writer out there you talk about a guy who got you know tries to take a break from it and has to come back and do it because it you know it is what it, it is what he is it is what he does and uh, you know it's a it's a really interesting I was talking about it last week again about you know people who stay around the business are the ones that have to do it it's just it's it's in them it's a, it's a need more than a want uh, and you just kind of get that sense from Mark that he's just that passionate about it and look that's where all the best work comes from when someone cares that much about it when it's that important to them oh just an absolute pleasure to be in his company so look that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what is going on around town the Abbey Theatre has the picture of Dorian Gray with the great Mike Sheehan and of course downstairs in the Peacock they have Shabari from the brilliant uh, Gary Duggan who we had on uh, a couple of weeks ago the gate has the last summer the Viking Theatre has a very short run of Joyce and that'll be followed by their all conquering direct from the gaiety Tuesdays with Murray um, the Theatre Upstairs is finishing up their run of Minus One which will of course be followed by a little show called Fight Night come down and see us we're there for the entire uh, Halloween week the midterm week up to Saturday the 3rd of November um, and then finishing up Saturday the 3rd of November and that is it your last ever chance to see me do this show in Dublin we may well come back for a bit of international touring uh, next year probably but uh, if you want to see me do this show if you've been promising yourself for all these if you're going oh Jesus he won't ever forgive me if I don't go and see it now now is your chance to come and do it we'll throw in a bowl of soup and some delicious bread come down to Lanigan's spend a lunch hour with me see fight night you know just check it out it's uh, I think it's an exceptional piece of writing from Gavin Costick I think Brian Burroughs has done such a phenomenal job in putting the show together and I think I'm not too bad in it myself I'd love to have you down there please come down and see us um, then as we move around Bewley's has Down by the River with the brilliant Michael Bates and uh, Stoker uh, from Ouroboros directed by the great Carl Shields is on at the Beckett Centre in Trinity College 
So look, that's us. That is episode 51, the penultimate one, the second to last one in the books, man. Uh, well, we really are coming to the end of this amazing journey. I wonder, will I be sad next week to wrap it up? Nah. Uh, we will, of course, be back next week for that final big episode with uh, arguably our biggest guest yet for uh, for a chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. Maybe Ireland's leading theatre maker, him or herself, not giving away too much. But in the meantime, this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. <laughs>